Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Uh, I hope everybody has been staying safe and having a fun, uh, happy election night. I know that it's hard to achieve these days given how polarizing and how still full attention this election season has been. Uh, I'm currently recording this on Thursday, November 5th in the evening. So as of right now, we still don't know a lot of the election results, Nevada, uh, Georgia, and Pennsylvania are still at play. So we don't really know what the outcome will be like, uh, but I think it might be nice to uh, record this little bit. Uh, I, I've never really done monologue before on this podcast. We've done almost more than 100 interviews so far in the past two years. All of them are interview based and all of them are with guests. Two nights ago on election nights for the first time, I invited more than 20 of my friends and team members from Policy Punchline and joined me to do a four hour long live stream uh, on policypunchline.com on YouTube. You may still watch the, the live stream. And today I want to preface uh, by, by giving you this short monologue before showing you a clip of our live stream. What I really miss the most about Princeton's on campus live is the long heated debates that my friends and I would get into at every meal or at every break. And it's a mixture of careful and logical reasoning a citation of a wide range of facts and opinions, and also uh, just having fun. And, and I'm always impressed by the depth and thoughtfulness of my friends. And I've been meaning uh, to bring those discussions to our listeners and beyond, uh, through at least through allowing them to co-host some interviews with me, but this time uh, through interviewing them and co-hosting a panel and live stream on the election this time. The election has been quite extraordinary so far. As I said, we don't know um, what's like, but it is a nail biter. I want to use this as a quick opportunity for my own reflection, uh, and I hope it could spark some interesting discussions. I imagine many of you might push me back uh, fiercely, so please don't hold back as usual. There are a couple of things I think we got right, uh, Policy Punchline got right a couple of weeks ago. David Pakman, the famous YouTuber and uh, political host, said um, that Biden's chances don't better than 50-50, and that appears to be the case today. Um, we wrote an op-ed just uh, this past weekend, around two, three days before the election. Some team members and I, we uh, wrote about why Nate Silver is no better than crackhead Jim. It's a very provocative topic uh, that, that I will soon explain a bit. Uh, we iterated the view again uh, on APM on election night. We, we said the polls were probably off. So were the forecasts. And by midnight, everybody had that thought in mind. There's this joke on Twitter that I saw, which said, we run 40,000 simulations of election forecasts and Nate Silver was wrong in 90% of them. To make fun of how he ran 40,000 simulations of election forecasts. And he said, Biden has 90% likelihood of winning. So what is going on there on that front? And I, I do think there's a interesting and continued to be interesting debate uh, to be had over there. But I think more importantly, what we got wrong is that for us, we started our live stream with some electoral mass predictions and all with varying degrees of blue sweep scenarios. And one of our team members even put Joe Biden at an electoral vote count of 375. I mean, in hindsight, it was ridiculous. It was really biased on our part to not even go over a Trump win scenario. I did criticize the polls, but at the last minute, I really drank the Kool-Aid and I didn't want to embarrass myself by deviating that much from Nate Silver and from the conventional wisdom, which is that there will be a blue sweep. That is my own cognitive dissonance, my own bias, and I feel really bad about it. And that is what I hope to talk about. I remember sending an email to my team on August the 13th, warning, warning them why I thought Trump may win and why we will likely go into a contested election 
I listed many reasons from hidden conservative votes to people not genuinely thinking that Trump did a bad job on COVID-19 crisis. Many of my friends thought I was out of my mind and pushed back very, very fiercely, uh, citing very, various reasons of white support for, for Biden. And yesterday, the American people had spoken, and they resoundingly rejected the hypothesis that Americans are overwhelmingly disappointed at Trump. I mean, if you think that Biden's nail-biting is still not certain, perhaps victory, uh, as America's condemnation of Trump's four-year performance, then you may be even in a greater cognitive dissonance than I was. I do not think that it was at all a condemnation on Trump, a rejection of Trumpism. And, and to be, for the record, just to be clear here, I'm not making a partisan statement. I am not supporting either side per se in this statement. All I'm hoping to really observe here is that I think the inability to understand Trump voter has not been treated seriously by the hyper-rational, college-educated, what you would call sensible or liberal people at large. I mean, mostly liberals and mostly people on the left, we think we understand and we can list a litany of reasons why the Trump voters on the opposite of us are wrong and why we are right. But I don't think we truly do understand. And by we, I truly mean my group, my podcast team, kids like me who go to fancy institutions like Princeton and think that we have received great education. I want to say that I think we first have to get out of simple correlations and mainstream narratives. And by that, I mean, first of all, this is the whole point of long form podcasting. That's what we're really trying to do here. I want to start with a very small and quick example. Just because Trump used the phrases like Kung Flu, where he said China virus, many of you might think that it would be utterly irrational and even morally condemnable for a Chinese American person to support Trump now. No, that is not the case. If you really look at uh, to, to, uh, the Chinese Twitter, uh, what is happening, the discourse between Chinese Americans uh, on social media and beyond. I do not think that Trump has lost any support among Chinese Americans. Why? Because they support his trade war against China. They believe that he and Pompeo and the Republican Party, China Hawks, have finally stood up to the Chinese Communist Party. They believe that he did the right thing. He has been doing the right thing. So you may believe that his actions embolden races and that you may draw the idea that races vote for Trump, but you should probably not have extrapolated that logic to say all non-racists would not vote for Trump. So usually in mathematics, A implies B would mean not B implies not A. But here, A implies B, but it does not mean uh, not B uh, implies not A. So I feel like the rationalist framework has totally broken down and it has been breaking down for a long time, especially for someone like Trump. And this goes back to a greater reflection on my own education, which is that I think the longer I stay in the Princeton bubble and the ivory tower at large, the more doubts I have on my wonderful and very privileged education because what I've learned is to become more rational in my thinking, to be more considerate to a wider range of ideas, to advocate for progressive causes, those are all really great qualities that we should all strive for, but I think they make me too far away from how many others in this world think. In reality, people are one issue voters, so they don't consider a broad range of trade-offs like a lot of the Princeton kids do. They don't believe in science about climate change because they're not exposed to high quality facts in a ways that they don't feel threatened by. They're more tolerant to moral flaws that are despised on at higher education circles. Uh, they don't come to a synthesis like 
we do after hours of uh, rational and logical and respectful debates. This is not even to mention how all kinds of irrational psychology is behind one's decision-making like voting. So sure, I may have interviewed more than 100 renowned policymakers and maybe I'm quite good at it, but I probably wouldn't survive a day in real life politics, not in China, not in America. I mean, this is the same issue of why economists from Harvard and MIT can build out all the models they want, but their applications in underdeveloped world countries have often led to greater socio-political instability, except for the very few good micro uh, economic applications like reducing poverty in India and such and so on. But if you really extrapolate your ideas from your rationalist framework uh, to the greater world, we realize it probably often doesn't work. That is what happens when you put a bunch of Ivy League graduates in the State Department who have never lived in the Middle East. Uh, and that's how they make disastrous policies. And, and more dangerously, those who have lived there for two years and think they understand the region are even worse. And which is really what I think is happening a lot of times is that we think we understand the other side. We think we understand what is going on in American people's minds, but we are really, really stuck in our bubble. So how do, I, how do we work on the limitations? I really don't know, but perhaps one way is to constantly update our beliefs and update our beliefs, especially strongly when something unexpected happens. And I think one thing I truly respect about Nate Silver is that his model is what we would call something as Bayesian. In one second, I'll try to explain his economic, his election forecasting a little bit more, but under the Bayesian model, one would constantly update their beliefs. That is why you see Nate Silver runs all those simulations and why he's constantly adjusting his forecasts and odds ratios on his website, which is great. But as college kids, I think we are somewhat fundamentally incapable at updating our beliefs because we've received the best education in the world and we are surrounded by the most brilliant scholars all the time. So who happen to, by the way, all share mostly the same beliefs like us. So I can find all the facts to support my beliefs. And also I won't just find random facts on, on, on Facebook. I will find good facts and quite superior facts, whether it's from academic journals or credible news outlets. We really think we got the knowledge down and we really think we're really close to the truth. But what if we aren't? I mean, there was this fun example that I, I, I learned recently, which is that Kenneth and Rogoff, two very uh, important economists, seminal paper uh, right after the 2008 financial crisis concluded that countries should enact austerity policies after 2008. And many Eastern European countries indeed did that. But it turns out that their papers reached the wrong conclusion about this due to an Excel error. I mean, you can look this up on, online. It's, it's quite an interesting story. So if the world's most highly regarded economists can be wrong and subsequently lead to disastrous outcomes and ruin livelihoods in certain countries and regions, I don't know why most of us, by us, again, I mean, college kids who barely learned how to run a linear regression with controls and computers, you know, a couple months ago, how can we be so certain about our beliefs on the effects of Trump's tax cuts or others in policy and so on? I, I'm not saying you shouldn't develop a view. I'm saying that a view merely based on an Instagram post and a few news articles is likely very far from the truth. Again, just because we, we go to some fancy school, just because we think uh, we tried the, our hardest to, to, to update our beliefs, that doesn't mean we actually did. 
And the stronger our beliefs based on those sources, the greater our cognitive dissonance will be, and the more disappointed and shocked we would be. Back in 2016, everybody around me were shocked how Trump would get elected. And you would never understand that, as one of our recent guests, Trey Gowdy, former Congressman Trey Gowdy, has said, you would never understand how Trump got elected, or he might be reelected if there's not a single person around you that really truly believes so, and you never really sought out the facts that you disagree with. So I don't mean to encourage anybody to question uh, the science behind climate change. I'm not saying that we should be nihilists and relativists, but I think for non-hard science issues, for social science issues, or for like the effect of a policy intervention or, or the prediction of American voters' preferences, why should any of us be confident that we were ever, ever right? I mean, at least at my stage as, as a kid. So while you're confused why half America might, you know, voted for Trump again, I am confused why I am not fundamentally changing my lack of consumption of conservative ideas. I'm not talking about conservative talking points. I'm talking about serious works by respected public intellectuals on the right. Someone texted me yesterday and one of my friends, she said, She's very confused whether I'm actually conservative because I seem to hate liberals. I don't hate liberals. In fact, I would consider myself to be quite progressive in various ways uh, based on the, the conversations I have on this podcast. Uh, but a lot of people do get turned off that I, I invite people from all kinds of uh, political spectrum on my show. And I tend to play devil's advocate sometimes and some people don't like that. There's a reason why I play devil's advocate because I think it's crucial to expose ourselves to new data and new narratives and update our beliefs and update them especially strongly when something unexpected happens. And that's what I've always forced myself to be exposed to unconventional and counter mainstream narratives. And that, that's also what we're seeing in podcasting today, a phenomenon I'm fascinated by. The rise of Joe Rogan, Eric Weinstein, Sam Harris, those people, you will probably disagree with their views. You will probably really dislike the fact that Joe Rogan invited Alex Jones on his podcast a few days before the election. You will really disagree with it. But these are counter mainstream narratives. Maybe part of them are right. Who knows? Maybe we should spend more time examining them. I feel like it's not very helpful to immediately dismiss narratives and information that we're previously haven't even conceived of. And I think it's important for us to seek out those facts that we disagree with. And that's a major takeaway by me from, from this uh, election season, because it is quite fascinating to me that there were two cognitive dissonance that happened on the election night and the day following. The first is that people weren't prepared for the red mirage or how Trump was going to win many states or how uh, the countryside votes are gonna come in earlier than urban areas. And therefore we might not see the blue sweep. So, when we saw that Trump literally did everything that he needed to do, winning Florida, winning Ohio, North Carolina, South Carolina, winning all those states, when we saw that he did everything that he had to do in order to win, people panicked. People who are not all in Joe Biden really thought Trump won. They corrected their belief. And everybody that's all in Joe Biden were saying how they were fooled by the polls again. They really hated the polls. They, they, they started blaming the polls. And the next morning, the switch happened. <laughs> the red mirage faded. The urban votes came in. Michigan, Wisconsin became called for Biden and, and such and so on. And people started to readjust. They started to realize, oh, Biden could actually win. So the thoughts from that previous evening were somewhat an overreaction. And people that are 
all in Biden and now start to come up with many new narratives, like how Biden could still win more than 300 votes, you know, if he wins Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Nevada, and such and so on. It's really quite amazing how quickly people can switch from bemoaning uh, the end of Democratic Party to claiming a resounding victory for Biden, which I'm, I, I, I really think that is another phenomenon of cognitive dissonance, which is that you are so bought into the previous belief that you cannot seriously entertain an alternative the alternative is that maybe the Democratic Party didn't do a good job. Maybe the posters didn't do a good job. Maybe there wasn't a blue wave to begin with. And maybe we need some serious, serious reflection on the future of future direction of both the Democratic Party and the country. Maybe I think that is the conversation we should be having rather than coming up with new justifications and new narratives about why this is in fact actually a resounding rejection of Trump, why this is indeed a landslide victory by Biden. I am really not that optimistic. I am really, really not that optimistic because I think based on the data we've currently seen, far from turning Texas blue, Biden appears to have severely underperformed relatively to Hillary Clinton in some heavily Hispanic areas. Uh, the Democrats have not re retaken back the Senate. But they have not even knocked out a single Republican in the House of Representatives. Millions of more people voted for Trump than in 2016. And it became disturbingly clear that, one of my friends uh, told me this, that it is possible that if Trump gets voted out of the office, his people will simply do everything they can to make Biden a lame duck president because of the Biden-McConnell-Senate gridlock, just like the drama we saw again in, 20, in 2010 and forward. Uh, with Obama and the Tea Party. They would try to make Biden a lame duck president and maybe Trump will, will run again. So I think there are serious, serious questions we have to entertain. And we cannot just fall into a trap and thinking this is all fine. One last issue I do hope to bring forth to you before I, I've been talking for a long, long time uh, is this provocative topic we wrote whether Nate Silver is worse than Crackhead Jim. We don't actually do mean that, but uh, perhaps it's interesting to give you a, in some insights on what Bayesian statistics is, because this semester, a few friends and I have been taking Princeton's first year PhD econometric sequence with Professor Boan Array and Professor Chris Sims. And Professor Sims won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2011 for his pathbreaking work in macroeconomics and especially his application of Bayesian inference to evaluate economic policies. Nate Silver, who is widely regarded as the preeminent poster uh, and voice in election forecasting, he uses Bayesian methods in his forecasting. So a few friends and I analyzed the Bayesian method and, and posted this op-ed, which you can find on policypunchline.com slash op-ed. We hope that this could give you some insights on, on the issue. Bayesian statistics, is distinctly different from the opposite side, which is the frequentist stati statistical method. For example, say you want to infer where percentage of American people want to vote for Trump. The frequentist would say, I don't know what that percentage is, but I know that value is fixed, meaning that it is a number that is not random. So as long as you can ask everybody in this country and everybody answers truthfully, you will get that number. So there's really not a point for us to assign any probability distribution on that. A Bayesian would say, sure, we may never be able to ask every American's opinion of Trump, but given our polling of people around us, we may be able to assign a probability distribution to that unknown percentage that we're interested in. So for example, 
maybe I would assign almost zero probability to the fact that less than 10% people actually want to vote for Trump, right? Which is highly improbable. And maybe I will assign a 52% probability for a percentage between 25% and 35% of Americans voting for Trump and such and so on. And you can construct those odds ratios. So the Bayesian method is very beautiful because it allows you to start making predictions even with very small data sets. And indeed, presidential election data and polling data are very small data sets. But the beauty of Bayesian inference doesn't just stop here. It is that it also allows you to keep updating your beliefs as you see more data. So for example, maybe the first 50 people you talk to are all liberal college kids. So may, you may have arrived at a skewed belief that nobody supports Trump. But then as you ask more people, and hopefully now some of them are on the right, you will gradually start to realize that your prior belief was wrong and you should update your posterior belief based on the conservatives you've just talked to. And then you go ask more people and based on how right or wrong your previous conception was, you keep updating your beliefs and continue down this path. So to, to get to the truth, you don't need to start with a lot of data. You just need to be willing to update your beliefs as you see more data and update them especially strongly when something unexpected happens. So that is why I said, uh, why Nate Silver, what, what he does is a fundamentally beautiful statistical process. And Nate Silver is a, is a Bayesian. And the reason why a lot of people say his forecasting wasn't bad, and in fact, his forecasting is very, very popular, even among the most highly regarded econometricians we've talked to, is because Nate Silver's prediction in the 2016 election was quite good. He, on the election night, he said around 30% likelihood that Trump would win. And before that, maybe he fluctuated around 16% and such and so on. Even if you think of an odds ratio of 16%, it's really not that low, right? Because it's literally one in six, which is a roll of a dice. So a lot of people would say, well, if you really wrote Trump off, then you simply don't understand statistics. And because of your lack of knowledge in statistics, the supporters of Nate Silver would say, you could not grasp the true meaning of Nate Silver's forecast model. And this year he assigned Trump a 10% probability of winning. Well, then this is where our objection comes in. We think that Nate Silver was not right because he could really never be wrong. You cannot expect the American public to react to a 16 or 10% likelihood as, oh, Trump actually has pretty good odds. That's first of all, you cannot, this is kind of a misguided uh, to, to the American public. And also, I think there's a more philosophical and deeper argument to be made here, which is that Nate Silver cannot really be right or wrong when there's no strict standard to judge him, right? So we, we gave this example of crackhead Jim, which is that every election, he just says that a Democrat and the Republican candidate each have a 50% chance of winning. And no matter who wins, he'll argue that he is a genius, right? Because if Nate Silver's 16% were good odds, then Crackhead Jim's 50% would be amazing odds. But is Crackhead Jim truly a good forecaster? Probably not. How do you call out him for being the fraud he is? So the fact is, we cannot make a judgment on who's right and who's wrong for a prediction of an election in the same way that my friend Michael Senka would later argue, just like you cannot argue with whether string theory in the physics community is right or wrong, because there's really no way to verify it, right? You, you cannot really say 16% is good or bad because based on what are you judging it? Are you based on 10% likelihood or are you based on 20% likelihood? Then sure, Nate Silver is definitely better than Huffington Post who said Hillary Clinton had a 99% odds ratio of winning, but was he really better than 
crackhead Jim who said 50%. So the issue is that forecasters through their complex probabilities models have made this game easier for themselves. It would be a much more transparent and stricter benchmark to judge them on a binary outcome basis, right? For example, if Nate Silver comes out every year with just one projection, either this is the winner or this is the loser, rather than assigning a probability distribution. Because with a probability distribution, it's really, really hard to judge whether it's right or not. Well, there are more potential objections to this, and there are actually ways that maybe you could argue that you can judge Nate Silver, which we talk about in the ensuing uh, discussion that I'll present to you. But this is really the punchline. The punchline is, if there's no way that I can tell you that you are wrong, I would never say that you are right. If we cannot know how Nate Silver could be wrong, why would we say he's ever right? I think that's an open-ended question posed for people. Some people will say he is still really good. Some people would say that he is bad. Well, I don't think he's good or bad either. <laughs> that, that's a cop-out answer from me. Anyways, I've talked for a long, long time, and I've rarely done monologues before. I hope uh, this is somewhat of a novel, uh, some insights that, that you may appreciate. Uh, I will soon turn to a segment that we recorded on election night, a discussion between some of my really, really good friends uh, and, and me. We talked about some of the most urgent issues uh, from election forecasting and polling uh, to the future of Obamacare and public health outcomes and economic policy outlook. You may find the full four-hour recording on our YouTube channel or on policypunchline.com. Uh, but here we're, we, we present you a very short snippet of our discussion on the social discourse and political climate of America and what the hell is going on, basically. That is the question we seek to answer. This is quite an unconventional year and quite an unconventional podcast season uh, episode. I, I do hope that uh, you enjoyed everything we're doing right now. Um, please let us know if there's anything we could answer you, any other further discussions we can engage with. I truly, sincerely thank and appreciate all the support you've, you've given to this podcast. So now please let me uh, present our discussion. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, perhaps we can we can talk a little bit more high level about what the hell is going on with, with the elections polling because Jack, Michael, uh, Arjun, we, we all wrote a recent op-ed uh, published on policypunchline.com. You, you can read it there, which is called a Bayesian's uh, journey in election season. What does Bayesian mean? It's a statistical methodology and philosophical framework uh, adopted by the most uh, famous poster, uh, Nate Silver. Uh, and uh, he, he's a Bayesian himself, and the way Bayesian does things is that uh, they have a, a certain set of prior beliefs that they, 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 they start from, uh, they sample a small group of data sets, and then they keep updating uh, based on those. So we, we can go a little bit deeper on that front as well. But maybe, Michael, would you like to quickly uh, walk us through some, some of the arguments you made? Because you wrote the, the very provocative headline called, Is Nate Silver Worse Than Crackhead Jim? Why did you say that? What is going on? <laughs> that, so that, the, the main point that I wanted to get ahead with Crackhead Jim is that I think the community of pollsters and polling needs to be able to criticize themselves. Am I saying that they're bad? No, but you have to take last year as sort of a ding, right? If you look at Nate Silver's prediction of, you know, 16% Donald Trump, I think it was before like things started to happen. Sure, like a 16% chance still can happen. You can say, okay, well, you know, Nate Silver could have still been right and this 16% chance happened, but the reality of the situation is we can't go back 
and redo the election to see if actually 16% of the time Trump would win. So his prediction, if we want to rate a prediction, you have to sort of rate the prediction method and how it works. And the way, the most standard way I can think of rating it is saying, okay, did he, did the most likely winner actually win? Did he get the weighted coin correct? But, you know, a lot of pollsters in the 2016 election got the wrong thing. The whole crackhead Jim thing was just saying, you know, if you're giving 16% odds, like good odds, then if crackhead Jim just says 50-50 for each candidate every four years without thinking of anything, then he's going to be called great as well. So whole point of all this, like ignoring crackhead Jim and all of this, is I think it's very important for the polling and pollsters community, now that we're using a lot more advanced methods like Monte Carlo integration for very, you know, avant-garde, tailored, random variables to these states, I think it's very important to start realizing if there may be a flaw in a system because the some of the best forecasting that we have today have grown a lot out of recognizing that it has flaws. You can't give Nate Silver excuses for pulling a 16% for Trump when he won. And the two main examples I can think of off the top of my head are for weather forecasting. So the first time we started using computers to forecast. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off right there, but I think maybe just to quickly clarify it to some of our listeners. Some people would say 16% likelihood is very good. And, and by the way, Nate Silver uh, eventually predicted uh, Trump to be winning around 30% odds on the, on the, before the election night. And, and because w- why do I say that 16% odds is pretty good? Is because 16% is essentially a one in six, which is a roll of a dice, right? And, and, and if you think about it, that is not really a bad odds that, that he gave Trump even before the night, which is 30%, which is very, very high odds. So one could simply say that if you looked at 16% odds and you just simply wrote Trump off. You just don't understand statistics. What are you doing, man? You don't understand statistics, and now you're blaming Nate Silver for being wrong. So I would actually say Nate Silver was right all along. Okay, so you can take that lens if you want. If the community of pollsters takes that lens for every polling, even if you think of the worst-case scenarios, right, where every time they predict that the what ends up being the winner is 10%, then what we end up seeing is that a system for making these, like, odds that is very flawed, never gets criticized. So for what I was about to go into historically for the mathematical models we use for stock markets and for the mathematical models we use for weathering, both of those fields went through phases of, they brought in some new advanced method that was black box. People didn't fully understand how everything worked. It turned out to not work so well. You know, for stocks and weather, it's super easy to check if it doesn't work, right? Rain, we get like every day. Elections, we get every four years, right? There's no way to go back and redo election to see if your odds were right or wrong, right? So it's even harder to realize if your method is not great here. But for every forecasting field that is using methods that are still a little bit black box, and you can definitely argue like the pollsters' methods are a little bit black box. Every one of these fields had a like a regime where everyone realized, okay, Something's going wrong with this. How do we possibly fix it? Just took a step back, looked at how everything was going, made improvements, and then it became great. Weather forecasting, obviously everyone has their phone and it does a good job of telling what the rain is. And any quant firm is learning how to deal with, you know, what happened after COVID where we saw the performance of them drop a ton, right? Um, that's the general spiel. Am I saying they suck? Maybe, maybe not, who knows? But I think if you're looking from a, even a pollster's point of view if you're one in the pollster community then there needs to be some system of judgment set up where you're saying okay maybe there is room for improvement for how we're doing polling and maybe we should be looking into that for the next four years but that's just my general mathematician distant from politics not ever seeing how the pollsters actually work perspective 
I think you, Michael, you make a good point about um, like outcomes. I think something, you know, like intuitively, let's say, you know, there's two different um, uh, pollster or, you know, Nate Silvers, right? Uh, Nate Silver one, Nate Silver two. One of them says, oh, Biden has a 60% chance to win. The other one says Biden has a 65% chance to win. There's not a lot of disagreement there, but clearly they're using something different between their models, right? And unless you do, um, you know, we wait decades for them to run all these different models on presidential elections, we're never going to, it's going to take a long time before we know who's better. Um, and I think what you're kind of getting at is that, you know, we, it's, it's easy to kind of obfus, obfus, yeah, obfuscate, obf, whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, exactly. It's easy to overlook um, differences in like, well, you know, Trump won, he had him at 30%, but we would be saying the same thing if Nate Silver had him at 20% too, right? It, no. You know, it, so it, it, there's only either Trump wins or Biden wins or no. Trump wins or Hillary wins. And there's no, it's not a continuous outcome. So I think, you know, a response to that is something that I don't think people do, but maybe should start doing is we use these models not to predict just binary outcomes, but also continuous ones. If you have these models looking at demographics of voters in going deep into the, the cross tabs of the polls saying, all right, independents and Midwest states are leaning this way towards Trump or Biden, you should be able to come up with a model to predict what the margins are going to be in certain you know, congressional districts, in certain states, in certain counties, swing counties, bellwether counties. You should be able to say, well, based on my model, based on the economy, based on the number of new COVID cases, based on the polls, uh, I predict that, let's say, you know, the, the Philadelphia suburbs are going to have X, uh, Biden's going to win it by X votes this year. Uh, I think, you know, and this is kind of a way forward, I think, if, if you start doing that, it's a lot easier to compare. It's it's more tangible to say, you know, all right, I Nate Silver won, who had Biden at sixty percent, maybe thinks, um, you know, Joe Biden will win the suburbs by twelve percent, um, and sixty five percent, uh, by you know Biden Nate Silver two says no, it's going to be fourteen percent, and that I think, it, I don't know, no one's really doing that now. I don't think you know you see a lot of especially on Twitter, a lot of people who are really involved in politics saying, well, if these trends continue, I expect. Biden to win this county by this much, but it's not, it's never, it's, it's more intuition and general trends. It's never these like advanced um, Bayesian models. And I, I would really think it'd be awesome, especially in the long term, if pollsters started using those um, to kind of make those predictions, make those continuous variable predictions so we can have better, you know, calculate error of your model better. And we don't need to wait 50 years to find out which Nate Silver is the best. Yeah, no, I mean, this is like, this is this is generally what I want out of this kind of discussion. Not just pollster shots like suck. We shouldn't listen to them. Yada yada. I think right now there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. So you certainly shouldn't like, oh Nate Silver, he must be right. Yada yada. But what I would hope would come from this discussion is what we saw with weather forecasting and what we're seeing now with quant finance after the whole COVID crisis is you know getting better models in the future. You know, obviously for some people that's good. For some people, they just want to have their sports game and not know what the hell is going to go on for the election. But I think for the the pollster community, I think that having a healthy look at specifically 2016, 2016, we'll see about 2020 and say, that was a flop. Okay, maybe we should start looking at things and see what we can do better. That That is generally a healthy perspective for the pollster community. I find this interesting. What's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I like so at least my initial take would be like was inclined to say that maybe we're overfitting to 2016 in the sense that like I think polling was yeah, was accurate in many ways in both the national and state levels in all previous elections or, or in, in, in many previous elections before. We could be in a, in a, in a 
time in in I guess to make a sort of more philosophical statement, like you know, we seem to be in a, in a, in, a, in the kind of time right now, um, politically and and um, ideologically, that that there's just kind of a realignment that's happening, um, and 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 you know what I see is like when you see like the Rust Belt, which is generally traditionally a little bit more democratic, especially Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, all shifting closer to Trump, and you see the Sun Belt slowly shifting towards Biden demographically. I think we're seeing these changes that we would expect to, you know, if you had like normal candidates, right, and you were in a normal political environment, you would expect these changes to occur gradually. But I think that the fact that like something like Texas is in play this election, right, indicates that these changes are happening at a kind of pace where like pollsters are not really able to adapt, right? So, 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 so I think that that's something to keep in mind is that like the pace at which demographics and the pace at which states are shifting either from red to blue or blue to red are so fast that that I tend to have sympathy, more sympathy for pollsters. So that's one point, right? Um, second point is I I, I think like um, I I agree with the point that like you know if, as long as you, you know, the whole crack at Jim thing of 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 you know if if they predict fifty percent for each candidate they can always say that we give we gave the candidate who won enough odds and we gave the candidate who lost enough odds. Um, I think there are still ways to so I mean you can still like binarize a probability distribution, right? You can still say like let's see whether they predicted the, like the candidate who actually won based on like, right. you know, giving the maximum probability, right? Taking the, the maximum probability candidate. Um, and if you do that, I would, I would suspect, right? If you look at, if you sort of go back and, and look at, you know, Nate Silver's predictions, um, I would suspect that he's probably gotten it right most of the time, except for 2016. Um, so, so there's two ways to evaluate, right? Then the, the other thing is like, when the outcome is in, indeed incorrect, how much uncertainty did you give, right? Um, so, 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 um, in that in that sense, I give Nate Silver more credit because even in 2016, there was more uncertainty that he gave for a Trump win, right? I think it was it was 30% odds, right, at the on election day. A lot of a lot of other um, models, I think, had like 10%, 5%, even 2% odds, things like that. Um, it, it's just occurring to me now. So I'm circling back to the first point. I also think that like the whole Bayesian approach, right? It's the, the idea is that you have priors, you have prior beliefs about what you think is the important things to to that that matter in a presidential election, right? Um, and so like, usually that's like, okay, well, you know, the, the state of the economy and, and um, um, things like that, right? So, so, so um, those, are, those are valid priors, but then to go back to my first one about things changing so rapidly right now and, and demographics changing, those are maybe not the correct priors to have anymore. And we don't know. Like they, we're in such yes. an uncertain political environment. So, so it, it's harder for me to say like, these are the priors that we should choose based on past data. Because I don't think past data is necessarily reliable for actually establishing priors for the current political environment. So I think that's something to sort of think about with regards to using Bayesian methods. I, I think just to quickly clarify for our listeners I mean, about the Bayesian method, if you're just joining. So the Bayesian method is fundamentally different from their opposite side, which is the frequentist method, because Bayesians are essentially saying, uh, so the frequentists would say, because let's say you want to infer how many Americans will actually vote for Trump, that would be a fixed number, right? On, on election day, you will know that number. So if it's a fixed number, it's, if it's not random, then there's no point of assigning some probability distribution to it. And then the Bayesians are, are very innovative in the sense that they would say, yes, you still can. Like, sure, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't go around literally asking every American about their opinion, but you could still assign a probability distribution to that unknown parameter and, and say, maybe, I think maybe there's a a 25% chance that this could happen. There's a 35% chance that this, this could happen. So you think 
you, you see, the Bayesian method allows you to make predictions with very small data sets, and, and presidential elections are a very small data set, right? You don't have that much data to work with, so you have to go in with certain prior beliefs, and, and you use that prior belief, and then you say, how do I sample some more data, go around, pull some more people, use some more new data to test that belief that, that I go in with, right? So that's what Arjun was saying, is that if you if you went in with, with the incorrect prior, it may take many, many, many rounds of elections and many, many polling in order to actually correct that belief. And, and uh, that is a very, very difficult process for pollsters. So to, to Nate Silver's credit, what he's doing right now, I think is a fundamentally very beautiful statistical process, right? It's a very iterative process to get to the truth you get some data, you go in with a prior belief, but you're always willing to update your belief and you're always updated. That's why we see all those simulations on Nate Silver's website and we see him constantly adjusting his odds. And I think that's a that's a really, really valiant effort in, in that sense and very innovative way of doing election forecasting. But I, I guess just to add on to your point, Arjun, about how we can actually hold posters accountable and also to refute your point, Michael, I think we can entirely uh, uh, to hold posters accountable by tallying up their performances over many, many elections, their predictions, right? So, for example, Michael, you said Crackhead Jim would uh, predict 50% chance of uh, Biden winning or, or, or Trump winning in, in uh, every single election. But uh, Nate Silver would adjust his odds. Sometimes he would, he would say a 16% versus 82%, sometimes 10% versus 90%. And you can tally up all the distributions, all the probability he assigned to those people. And on average, he will likely have a much higher average of the probability he assigned to the winning candidate compared to uh, someone someone like Crackhead Jim. So I, I disagree with you, Michael, because I think we can totally uh, uh, evaluate the posters. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts beyond that. So. No, no, no. So the point for Crackhead Jim was exactly what you just said, was that you need, you need to make an evaluation of ticking how many people they predict will win versus won't win over time, or else your anomaly is someone like Crackhead Jim, which whatever value metric you're using to value how good a pollster is, like he's just going to come up on top. If 16% is still good for Trump, then 50, like 50% is great. So like what you said is exactly the point of that analogy is to say, okay, if we want to look at the performance of pollsters, right, from a more practical lens, right? If we want to try to have some sort of lens to say, you know, or do they potentially need some sort of fixing, right? This is the whole idea of like, if you'll never admit you're wrong, I'll never tell you you're right, right? If there's some way to say, okay, these are not working well, I think that's healthy for the field of pollsters to know when it should readjust. And as Arjun was saying too, right, like, Elections are sort of hard to gauge if you're just in this little Trump bubble of things not working well, or if this really is a paradigm shift and we should think of adjusting these like black box methods for the pollsters, right? That's really tough to say, but I would argue that it's healthier to lean on the side of air than on the side of everything is good, as in on the side of maybe there is something that we can fix. But that, that's the, yeah, that, that the main spiel of Crackhead, Jim, is exactly what you were saying, that you need to make that sort of valuation for pollsters. Uh, Arjun, Jack, any, any thoughts on, on this issue? More? Any more thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'll just, I'll just like, yeah, final, like, I mean, I think my, my trust for, for polls was, like, higher than most um, in 2020, because I, I, I think a lot of people said that polls were bullshit after, after what happened in 2016. Um, that said, right, like at least the first data point of the night, right, Biden was up in the in the in the poll average in Florida um, by I think two or three points, and uh, Trump is going to end up winning that by about three points. 
which is by Florida standards is, is a massive landslide victory. Um, so, so, so that's something to consider, right. In, in the sense that like, it looks like polls completely missed. Like, so, you know, when the Miami Dade numbers came and, 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 you know, Biden had like incredibly bad numbers compared to what, what Clinton had in 2016 when she lost the state, people were shocked. Right. So, so clearly pollsters missed something again, right. There was always this like worry about Cuban Americans, but nobody had a sense that it was this bad. So something is being missed, right. Maybe that's a unique to Florida phenomenon, you know, or maybe that's something that we see playing out across the Sun Belt in 2020. We'll see. But like our first data point of the night in, in, in terms of like a swing state um, that we know the outcome of now is is a pretty significant polling error on, on the magnitude of, of, of probably about five points. That's that's pretty big. So, yeah. Jack, I know you had some thoughts about whether we should trust the polls and, and things like that. What do you think on, the, on that front? I mean, because the pollsters yeah, sure. did uh, kind of miss in the 2016, but we are saying that they are overcorrecting this year. Yeah, well, so one of the reasons, um, I think it's, it's let, let's talk about the polls in 2016. In 2016, the national polls were pretty accurate. Um, they predicted about a two to three point Hillary win um, in terms of the popular vote, and they were, they were pretty much on, uh, dead on with that. Um, however, the problem is when you start looking at certain swing states. Um, I think there's a misconception that all polls were wrong um, across the states. That's that's not necessarily true. Um, in Florida in 2016, the New York Times Siena poll, which is a very highly rated pollster by 538, had Trump plus three, and he ended up winning, even though um, I think the polling average was like Hillary plus 0.5 or something, something like that. So it was very close. Um, but I mean, even this year. Uh, you know, uh, Biden had a narrow lead in uh, Florida, and I be decision desk HQ has called Florida for Trump. Um, so, you know, wh why are our polls just terrible? Um, let's let's. So, the reason that the people say the polls were off is is largely due to the fact, <laughs> yeah, lar um, largely due to the fact that state polls often they have to weight their samples, right? Um, so, you know, you, you run a poll in a state, you get a certain amount of Democrats, certain Republicans, certain independents, and you want to match it to the state's overall levels because otherwise your sample is not representative. So people will scale them. Um, however, the other problem is, is it's more than just Republican, Democrat, independent. You also have to look at education. Are they blue collar, white collar income? Uh, because if you don't look at that, your your poll sample might also, you know, overrepresent a certain group. Um, obviously, in 2016, Trump did extremely well in rural counties white counties, um, a lot of the, you know, former, and you might call them ancestrally democratic areas that used to be very pro-union. Now those have kind of disappeared. The, the manufacturing's on the decline. Uh, if, if state polls didn't account, like uh, didn't weight their polls correctly in terms of how lower education, you know, I, that, then that's a bad term. We, we shouldn't say lower education makes them sound dumb or something, but the, the blue collar workers who don't have college degrees, if, if they weighted them incorrectly, they're going to underestimate Trump's support. And that's kind of what happened. Um, you, you saw pollsters admitting this. And in theory, um, in 2018, most major polls were pretty accurate in most states. And, you know, they, they felt they've corrected for that. Although, again, in, in, um, so in general, I, I was going to point out in Florida today, you know, you see the polling averages were a little off. But um, going back to can we trust them? I think mostly, yes. You just need to make sure you're, when you look at a poll, um, don't just average polls together. Look at their methodology. Look at their, who, who, are, who is their sample? Who are they sampling? How did they do it? Um, because if you have a very unusual sample, you're going to get funky results, either in pro-Biden or pro-Trump. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's helpful to look at more 
specific polls. For example, I, I know I mentioned this, this to you, Tiger, and this will be the last thing I say. Um, in 2016, there were polls about a week before the election um, of, of congressional districts in New York, in upstate New York, which obviously everyone thought would go for Clinton, and it did. But it this was a, a district Obama carried. Um, and it showed Trump with a big lead, a, a, a double-digit lead, and he ended up winning over the double-digit lead. And that was unusual because no one would have expected that at the time. And what you, what you saw is that districts that were like that, the upstate New York, the more rural areas, also had this large shift towards Trump, like northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, northeastern Pennsylvania voted for Trump by nine or ten, eight, nine or ten points, I think, even even as it elected Democrats down ballot. So that shift, which was kind of missed due to that waiting error, um, it, it, it caught everyone by surprise. Now, I don't know. We'll have to see how the polls work out this year. I think most people are confident that they're going to be better this year. Um, but who, who knows? We'll see. Yeah, so some, some of sort of just add on to that, right? Like in terms of, I think my, my, my views on polling are, are becoming like more negative in real time. Um, but like, um, you know, in, in Ohio, right? So in, in, in all these Rust Belt states in, in like basically the big, the big error in 2016 was that you were undercounting um, white voters without college degrees, right? That that was that was the that was sort of the, the big error um, is that you weren't um, you weren't waiting for education, right? Polls were not waiting for education, so you ended up oversampling voters with college degrees who tend to lean more democratic. Um, but actually, like you know, the 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 non-college degree white working class population tends to also vote in very high numbers, and they vote in very high numbers for 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 Trump uh, in particular, right? So so. Um, a lot of the polling in the Rust Belt states now in 2020 to try to correct for what they did in 2016 is now waiting by education, right? So what that means is that like if you have, um, you know, two times the amount of college grads uh, in your poll, uh, then you sort of give each person um, in your, uh, uh, give each non-college educated voter a weight of two um, uh, in order to sort of correct for, for, for that bias um, or sort of any sort of weight that, 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 um, that balances out you're oversampling. The reason that oversampling occurs is because college grads tend to be more responsive to pollsters. Um, so, so this is these are the kind of changes that have occurred in polling, in, especially in the Rust Belt states, uh, in uh, in 2020. Now, the question is whether that is now overcorrected, right? So this is this is why I'm not sure about like how arbitrary polling is. Is that like okay, well, we look at 2016, we overfit to our errors, and now we actually overcorrect in the opposite direction, where we we overestimate Trump support maybe in these Rust Belt states. So like an example of that might be, and again, Ohio is very, it's still early. There's only 50% of the vote in, but Biden is doing better than we might've expected, right? Um, again, like a lot of the Republican counties have not voted. I, I really don't know what's, what the end result is going to be, but he's doing better than we might've expected at, at this point in time. And I think that's something to like think about with regards to like, maybe Ohio is, 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 is in a Biden positive direction, right? So, so it seems to me that like, a lot of these decisions that pollsters have to make are arbitrary and they have to, they are forced to overfit on small data because by definition, there's only a small amount of data points. Um, so, so, so maybe this is just more, more arbitrary and, and, and harder to really pin down than, um, uh, than it, it may seem. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, before we move on, I mean, we're already way over time on this uh, polling section, but I, there's one quick question I want to ask you guys is whether we should forecast uh, what I would call regime changing or black swan events that would that might completely break your model, right? For example, uh, there's a very, very high likelihood that we go into a contested election tonight. I mean, I, I think uh, there the were the previous results were saying that there's only a 15, 20% likelihood that we get 
a uh, the, the results on election night because of the mail-in ballots, because of some of the multiple states will be contested in some way uh, down the road. So if we are not even going to find out who the winner is going to be until like a week later or two weeks later, shouldn't you forecast that, build that into your model? I mean, I, I don't know if we should consider Trump as a regime-breaking event, but he broke the model, right? I mean, in a ways, assuming that Nate Silver was wrong, assuming. So my point is, let's say Trump pulls out a coup. Let's say Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation lets the Supreme Court swing some way. Again, very hypothetical situations, but should you incorporate some of those probabilities into our models? Tiger, I have a slight quick thought on this, and sorry for those who are here already. I'm a bit of a latecomer, so I missed the bulk of the debate that you all are having, which is very interesting. Arjun, in the vein of um, uh, polling errors, I think that there's a lot to talk about that we could get into briefly about Georgia and Florida, uh, Texas also, apparently. I don't know if you all have been following the latest on that, but that's quite interesting. Um, all that aside, and I love, believe me, I love to make fun of pollsters more than anybody, but that's that's uh, neither here nor there. But Tiger, to, to sort of flip it around to you for somebody that has like a very little kind of probability statistics background. My question would be, if you're talking about incorporating like black swan events, right, which are inherently unpredictable kind of cataclysmic things, what what would be the point of trying to build something like that in? Would be my question. Because because they're right, the, the very nature of what you're talking about is something that is completely random. Yeah, that's a good question. Good question. It is something that is completely random, but you can, if you can foresee that something completely random is going to happen, should you, for example, we could say that there's a 5% chance likelihood that just bad stuff will happen, illegal stuff will happen, or we're, like, we don't know that's what that will be. But it That's a different question, though, because, right, because we, those are predictable <laughs> things. You're asking about unpredictable things. A black swan event is something definitionally that is unpredictable, sure. right? Um, that's a paradigm shifting thing. Whereas what you're talking about, which is which is legal intervention on the part of attorneys, is quite predictable and, and indeed very possible thing tonight. And, and if it's predictable and possible, okay, let's let's forget about the terminology back so anyways, If that is predictable and possible, should we take that into our current consideration then? Because because that's uh, you know, I, I like where you're going, but I'm but I think it's unquantifiable. Yeah, I think that's what Arjun's critique as well for for me a couple of days ago, right? So yeah. I'm sorry, Tiger. I'm on their side. The, the crowd has turned against me. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> it's, no, it's an outstanding question. It's an excellent question. My point is... It's an outstanding SmackDown question. And this is what I'm going to say. You guys make fun of me, but some hedge fund on Wall Street must have already done that. They must have priced in, <laughs> made some random predictions and made money out of it. Okay. Well, the only, the only person is, that, Bill, yes. Bill Ackman's the only person in the United States that knows he's going to be the president tomorrow. So. I mean, I mean my, my, my point is, there is, I mean, it's true. I mean, 538 will not, the, the, the one critique is that if you're a poster and you incorporate some of those regime changing events and they don't happen, your reputation will be ruined, right? It will be, it, look, it will look so bad on you that you predict some wild thing and then nothing happened. However, markets, month, I mean, we can talk about this a little, little bit later when we talk about financial markets, economic outlook, but I mean, there's a reason why people make money and generate alpha, right? And, and if you want to make a better prediction than other people, that might be the trend that you have to incorporate more absurd events in your models. I, I feel like I'm talking like Alex Jones right now, just rambling. No, <laughs> no. Okay. Let me, let me, let me qualify something that I said a minute ago, which is that I, I do not think that for, I'll, I'll rephrase my argument. I don't think that for pollsters that this is a possible thing to do in general. I think that when we're talking about 
global financial markets, that's a different story because there are hedge funds, right, that, that are quite capable of assessing, predicting volatility and, and thus, you know, correcting their models for events like coronavirus, right? I mean, obviously, I don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I would, I would suspect that the majority of hedge funds that correctly remodeled their portfolios around the, the incidents of coronavirus started to do so after the first spread into Europe, into the United States, et cetera. I may be wrong about that. However, I think that the difference is that they have, a, they have an absolutely unthinkably enormous data set to work with. Elections are not that way, right? At the very best, we're dealing with, with you know, counts in the millions. Hedge funds are dealing with quite a, quite a bit more data, I would suspect. But, but this could be wrong. I'm curious to hear what the, what the more quantitatively minded people have to say. I'll give a quick example. So Raj Chetty, who is an Indian American economist at Harvard, one of the most famous economists, uh, Arjun really admires his work. He, he published some very amazing data on COVID-19 crisis, basically consumer spending, what was happening in each state. Uh, he released the whole data set, the whole academic world and, and students were like, oh, that's an amazing data set. And I talked to a Wall Street chief economist, and he was like, yeah, some hedge fund got that three months ago. They've already made money off of it. They, they've done that. So it seems that if you're in, a, in academia, if you're a journalist, you have to do things in a proper way. You have to predict things in a proper way. You have to do it in a way that, that, that's not going to ruin your reputation. But my point is, that's not the way how it's going to generate office. So what I'm saying is there, there's a very likely chance that Trump might pull something. Anyways, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole. Maybe we should probably move on to political discourse or something. Arjun, do you have any last thoughts on, on this issue before we move on? I'm good. I think I think we should move on. I, I do want to talk about, a little bit about the the state of our discourse because in our promotional poster we the the the, the uh, forgive my part of my French here, but we we were saying that we're a bunch of college kids shooting shit about what the fuck is going on in this country. So we want to figure out what is going on. Again, pardon me. Uh, well, well, this is a conversation that Arjun and I have been having for a long time. What is the problem on the left? What is the problem on the right? Uh, is America in this kind of great social progress awakening, like someone on the left would say, or are we in decadence, like uh, you know, someone on the right would say, in chaos? Uh, so uh, is cancel culture real? Is it a straw man argument? What is going on in this country right now? That's, that's, some, that's some of the questions that I think I am extremely um, interested in. I would love to hear you guys' thoughts. What do you think is the, the state of our social and political discourse right now? That is a huge question, Tiger. I think we should first try to narrow it down a bit. By discourse and by social, I mean the, the, the kind of uh, norm that dictates how people interact with each other on every day, right? On, on political issues and, and how political issues are being talked about in public and in private, right? So podcast hosts would say, where some, some of us are in terrible social chaos and terrible social turmoil, like Ben Shapiro would, would, would say, uh, people on the left would say we're, we're in, a, in a rapid shift of norms uh, and, and we're just trying to grapple with those issues. So, so the way I, I would characterize this, this term discourse would just be uh, the, the way that dictates pe how people think and how people interact with each other. Uh, like, for example, if all your friends are posting pictures on Instagram about <laughs> like becoming vegetarian or, or how they're all posting things about liking Joe Biden, that's, a, that's part of the social discourse that, this, that dictates and influences the way you think, right? So... One, one quick thought on this, and then I'll stop talking because I feel like I've been monologuing a little bit. But in any case, one, one observation on this would be that I think, Tiger, uh, in, op in direct opposition to what you're suggesting, I would propose that what is happening culturally here is a massive recycling of things that have been trotted out by both parties, by both you know, wings, progressive and conservative, et cetera, um, for, for many decades. And, and part of what 
occurs to me about this is that, for example, I think the most perhaps viral and aggressive thing that's been happening on social media in recent um, months, and, and particularly in the past couple of weeks, has been a massive push towards voting. Um, bipartisan, you know, in some respects, but I think progressive more often than not. But I think that's very interesting, right, that at, at perhaps one of the most controversial and one of the most hotly contested political turning points in recent memory, the big kind of rallying cry for progressives has not been you know, tear the whole thing down, right? It's it's been a it's been in my view a very decisive rejection of hardcore far left progressive policy, right? You see that in, in the nominee, and in particular, I think you see it in the fact that the rallying cry for this election is get out the vote and not you know uh, arrest and impeach Donald Trump or something like that. So I, again, I, I tend to take a very culturally, um, I guess my my approach is to to treat everything with a great deal of skepticism. But I think in this case, there's there's very little new that's happening here in my in my book. Yeah, I guess ask, I can... yourself, ask yourself, in other words, what's one slogan or what's one kind of ideological thing that we are seeing right now in this election that we did not forget about COVID because that I, that's not really what I'm talking about. But but aside from that, culturally, what is one thing that is different in this election than the last? Dude, I feel like you just asked a question that sounded extremely intelligent, but then Jack and Arjun were just like, we don't know how to answer it, bro. Like, what? <laughs> this is a hard question, man. <laughs> um, what would your answer be? I mean, what, what, what? Let's hear from Jack. Okay, yeah, I mean, I, so Chris, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like you're kind of saying you don't, you don't feel that at least the, 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 the socio-political status in our country has changed too much. It's just things coming up again, you know, they're, if the recycling terms that am i understanding you correctly yeah i i i'll refrain from hammering on it because i can think of so many different for example you know with trump and, and this sort of campaign slogans go back to america first which comes from 1920s or i don't know if it's the know nothing party or like really really early stuff right it's historical memory writ large but anyway i'll shut up go ahead jack yeah i feel like a lot you know the the you know, I'm, I'm from a very rural area. I, you know, Hillary Clinton got in the 20% where I live. Um, and I think this is just obviously one piece of it. We can, you know, this we, uh, cancel culture. I don't really want to, I don't, I don't really, we can talk about it later, but for now I'll, I'll just focus on the, you know, the politics since it is election day. I think it, there's certainly many ways I think voters in the U S are changing their opinions. There was a poll um, a few days ago, Gallup did just like a general poll of Americans. And I think 70% of Americans now support legal gay marriage. Um, now, does that mean 70% of them are, you know, don't have, think it's weird or something, you know, like, or homophobia or something like that? No, but at the very least, you know, that, that is a drastic shift within the last 20 years. Um, likewise, I think, um, you know, and this is something I think a lot of more conservative people like to say, um, that the, re, you know, the kind of realignment we're seeing within political parties where the Democrats are increasingly becoming, generally, not always, um, a party that represents uh, non-white voters, educated voters, and high-income voters, and, and younger women, and young voters. Whereas the Republican Party is more, has take, is more conservative, both socially and economically, obviously, but now they've increasingly sucked up um, the, the kind of, like, I mentioned this term earlier, ancestral Democrats, people who... 30 years ago, you know, to give an example, in Pennsylvania, if you look at the election map to three days from now, every county around Allegheny County where Pittsburgh is will be red, um, for sure. 30 years ago, 20 years, even in the 2004 election, 2000 election, all the counties around Pittsburgh were blue. 
because that's where the union workers used to be. That's where the coal miners used to be. They, they were solid Democrats. They, you know, in, in the year, I, I actually read this earlier today, in the year 2000, the Senate candidate for the Democrats in Pennsylvania was anti-abortion. Um, you know, Pennsylvania's had famous Democratic anti-abortion governors like Robert Casey Sr., Casey v. Planned Parenthood, the famous Supreme Court case about abortion, is named after. So you're seeing kind of, I think, both a cultural shift and kind of a, you know, it's kind of hard to quantify, but I think generally the trends are views on social issues for Democrats have decidedly moved left, or at the very least, Democratic voters have shifted their own views in response to Democrat. You know, there's a causality argument you can make there about our voters changing their minds and politicians reflecting it, or has, have Democratic politicians embraced abortion rights, and therefore the, the Democratic voters have increasingly embraced it. Um, I think to some extent, the, the kind of the culturally, you know, people who used to support Democrats for maybe economic reasons have... They don't like those as much, um, whether that's like about guns or immigration, the kind of America first thing you talked about. You know, they, they why, you know, why are we focused on a global globalization? You know, this is the United States of America. We should, you know, my, our jobs, you know, my town is getting worse off in, you know, Beaver County, Pennsylvania. Um, why aren't we focusing on us anymore? Things like that. And also, I think, um, at least in terms of like kind of radical trends among young voters at least. I mean, I'm sure we all know, or some of us may even be people who consider themselves leftists or have left very far left-leaning views more akin to, you know, Europe's European-style social democracy parties, social democrat parties. Um, I think that is not something that has taken the country by and large. It's, I think that's why Bernie Sanders didn't win his nomination. But among young voters, I think there's, an, for whatever reason, um, there's an increasing acceptance and um, belief in social democracy, democratic socialism, and, you know, it, communism even something like that but you know generally though much more openness to kind of a, a very strong welfare state um top-down economy among people our age at least who are educated i would say yeah no i, th I think those are great points i so, so i'm just gonna add that i think there are ways in which the discourse has shifted i think that the the the, the discourse has shifted substantially the desires of the electorate have shifted less in my you know, a decent amount. So, so, so I think like, you know, when you, when you look at the, the 2020 Democratic Party, right, Joe Biden is objectively speaking the most progressive candidate in American political history, right? You just, if you just sort of look objectively at the, at the proposals, right? Like that, so, so, so. What about, not, what about FDR though? You know, early, no, but, so, okay, let's, let's, let's put FDR off the table. But, but I guess, no, so FDR was, so I guess that, that's why I'm speaking objectively, right? I'm saying like, you know, but like, if obviously, rel, you know, relative to his time, FDR was probably seemingly more progressive than Biden. But I'm just saying, like, just from a from an objective perspective, in terms of what we would consider as progressive policies, um, what FDR has, has done is, is pretty much already on the table, guaranteed, not even thought about, and like Biden is pushing even further, right? So, so that's that's just what I mean by 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 objective. But I agree that relative to his time, FDR was was significantly more more uh, progressive candidate. I so so if, if you just look at the the dialogue of the 2020 Democratic primary, right, like. I mean, it's unbelievable if you compare this even to like 12 years ago, right? Um, in 2008, right? So, so, so you know, Obama's platform was much more moderate, and right and now, now you're talking about like, should we have a public option for healthcare, right? Or should we have completely government-run healthcare and abolish the concept of private insurance, right? And that was the main debate with regards to healthcare that was happening in the Democratic primary, right? Um, now, Biden did win that debate in a sense. Um, Although it's it's hard to say why Biden won, but like one can probably infer that more people 
might have wanted to keep the private networks. Who knows, right? But the, but the point is that the goalposts have shifted substantially. Where like when you had Obamacare passed, there was like a legitimate debate about whether healthcare is a right or a privilege, right? Um, there's a legitimate debate about like whether you should force insurance companies to protect pre-existing conditions, things like this. And now like that's just pretty much taken taken for granted, right? So 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 I do think like on the left with regards to climate, with regards to government intervention in the economy, with regards to healthcare, there is a huge shift in the dialogue of the Democratic Party. And like, if you, you can just look at that by watching the debate on stage, right? And I think similarly in the right, I think the discourse has gone almost even more, like, I think we have become more polarized in the sense that like, we don't talk as much about sort of middle, middle of the road solutions, right? So I think that like, I mean, in a way, Trump has been a very traditionally conservative president, but the dialogue that's happening on stage in the Republican Party, I think is even more extreme, right? Trump has pushed like, for example, the dialogue about immigration, to much more extreme version, right? In 2013, you had like bipartisan immigration legislation. Now you're talking about like deporting all illegal immigrants, right? So, so in in for both parties, I think that the dialogue has been pushed far, you know, in 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 in, what, in a given direction. Now, is that a bad thing? I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's a good thing, right? Who knows? But but I think that as a result of that, um, uh, the polarization that has occurred in the discourse has reflected itself in like the discourse of the country as well. Um, and, and I think that's why we see more polarization than we did before. We have less moderate leaders in power. We have less moderate ideas being talked about, and we have more ideas that are just totally opposed to each other to, to an extent where it's just hard to find common middle ground. Um, so, so I think this is one way of maybe thinking about how the discourse has shifted. At the same time, to Kristen's point, right, the fact is Biden won, right? Biden was the more moderate candidate in the primary, and he was the one who ended up winning. So the fact is the Democratic electorate is more moderate than, like, Democratic Twitter, right? Um, so, so, you know, like, that's something to keep in mind is that, at least on the Democrat side, people are a little bit more moderate. Now, I don't think that the same thing might be said for the Republican electorate because Trump, is again, is an extreme version. So, so it's hard to make definitive statements about anything, but, but the fact is, like, whether or not the electorate is more extreme on either side, it's definitely true that the discourse that's happening both at the party level um, and you know at, at, at the level of just people um, is, is more polarized than it was before. And that makes it, I think, harder to find middle ground. Now, Jack, Arjun, Christian, one question I would pose to both, both of you is, uh, why is that happening in a sense? Because uh, we interviewed a professor, uh, Julian Salazar, who is a very famous politics professor at Princeton, and he wrote this book called Newt Gingrich Basically Burning Down the House, basically narrating how Newt Gingrich started the hyperpartisanship on, on Capitol Hill, right? He was the guy who would win at all costs, who would uh, go after people's character just to win a bill. And we're seeing this trend in Mitch McConnell, or whatever, which completely made the Republican Party very fierce and brutal and much uh, more effective and ruthless than their Democratic counterparts. So some would say politicians screwed it up. You know, they're, they're, they're making uh, our social discourse more polarized. On the other side would say it's, all, it's simply because we are at a stage and, um, uh, of social progress uh, it's a great social awakening, for example, right? So we are recognizing issues like racism. We're recognizing issues like climate change. And those are such fundamental issues that if you are not on the same page with me, I just won't talk to you anymore, right? So one could, so that's, that's the narrative we constantly hear from our friends on the left who I often agree in their support with their political views, but they literally say, you, you, if you vote for Trump, you are racist, xenophobic, I just want to talk to you. If you you know, don't recognize that Black Lives Matter, I just won't talk to you. So 
one could one could even say that because we're making such great social progress and there's just such a great part of a large portion of our population that simply couldn't catch up and then they should be relegated they should be you know canceled whatever and and, and therefore we can't talk to them i mean i think part of yeah i i don't necessarily well you know putting what you said aside i think uh, the, to get at the point you said um why why is that polarization among like discussion you know talking about issues happening you know, I, I don't know. Obviously, I'm not too familiar. You know, I know, obviously, 1994, Newt Gingrich, the Republican Revolution. Um, I think this is something I'm not really based on too much evidence that I have, but a sort of an intuition. I think, you know, if you look at um, opinions on a lot of economic issues among Americans, they haven't shifted too much um, over the past, like, few, you know, however many years. Um, but people within political parties have become, you know, polarized. And I think part of the reason, and again, this kind of goes back to the like causality thing I was mentioning, whether it's you know politicians pushing issues and then the voters end up agreeing with them because they already identify with them, or if the people started polarizing themselves and the politicians reflected that, political parties, you know, the Republican and Democratic parties have very little in common um, or very little overlap, I should say. You know, if you think, um, you know, years ago in the 20th century, at least. Um, there were, you know, the Rockefeller Republicans, right? The liberal Republicans who were pro-choice, you know, who were pro-environmental regulation. Um, and obviously they still had conservative elements in other ways, but there was tons of variation within uh, the party itself. But for one reason or another, voters have started to identify, each party is kind of represented one side of the extreme, right? You know, there's no, the Republican Party's platform isn't 80% conservative things and 20% you know, liberal things or left-leaning things. It, it's pretty much conservative things. And the Democratic Party's platform is pretty much left-leaning things, liberal things, someone to make leftist things. Um, so I think whether that is the cause or it is a result of polarization, I don't know. But I think at least a trend that you could say is happening is that people in general, um, especially people who are more politically active, um, This I don't think you can make this claim about people who are less politically involved, but people who are very political to begin with have tended to their idea their their ideals are more aligned with one party or another. So when you're talking with someone who is from another side who is you know, also very political or has opinions, chances are you're not going to have too much overlap to begin with. Um, and I think that's reflected in kind of the political parties we have today. You know, there's just so few moderate. You know, the, the last the last moderate Democrat, Colin Pe you know, that some say Colin Peterson from Minnesota's seventh district. His his district was Trump plus thirty. He won in twenty sixteen and twenty eighteen. He's pro gun, anti abortion. Like he, he's a very conservative Democrat. He he's he's barely hung on. He's probably going to lose tonight. Um, kind of the end of an era, the end of a conservative rural Democrat, and they'll be all wiped out. Same, you know, you could say the same about Susan Collins in the Senate. She's looking. You know, who knows what will happen, but. A lot of people think she's going to lose her Senate seat as you know the last kind of moderate Republican in the Senate gone, right? So, regardless of how why that's happening, I think that's that's very connected to the point you're making, Tiger. Arjun, Abe, what do you guys think? Uh, as to your point about polarization, um, I actually have uh, it's a thought I'm still working with, but my suspicion is that it doesn't really have much to do with uh, 94, was it Gingrich's revolution, or um, or even a change in like the recent push towards progress. 
I think, um, for example, the if you look at the difference, uh, a couple of years ago, the New York Times had uh, I thought what I thought was a great article um, talking about polarization. And if you look at the difference between the parties where they stand between like 94 and maybe 2004, 2005, the change actually isn't that much in terms of voting record, which I guess is, I can't say as to rhetorically because I was like six, but in terms of voting record, um, both parties were still very much on the same page. In fact, there's probably even a little more overlap in 04 compared to 94. Um, where you really start to see, um, where you really start to see them pull away is around 2013, 2014. So what that makes me think is that it's not so much our positions that have changed, which of course they have. Like, let's, let us not forget that like 10, 12 years ago, even Barack Obama was not in favor of gay marriage. So like, let's not forget that like just out how far we came. But what really changed around the 2010s was the nature of our discourse. 2010, that was the uprising of Twitter, Facebook, social media. Like for the first time, that's around the time where our, our discourse moved primarily onto these platforms. And to, at that same time, um, legacy traditional media was, was, um, their their bottom line was being really being threatened by by uh, this this new this new method of discourse, and I think what you see in response to that is that unfortunately um, a lot of Abe uh, got cut out. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, he is one of our callers, by the way, to clarify for some of our listeners and viewers. Abe, you were cut out. You, you could uh, continue your thoughts. Uh, where was I? Uh, if you don't even know where you were. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't tell. know what I cut <laughs> where, it, it, it was pretty recently. It was pretty recently. Uh, you're talking about, you started talking about social media as the yeah, cause yeah, and you're going to that. Yeah, and in, in response, like this, this new form of discourse, this new realm of discourse, really for the first time threatened the traditional um i can't think of a better word but stranglehold that legacy media like your think your tv anchors on cnn fox news um, msnbc had on um on but information in general and i think what you see in the years following that is that in order to um, in order to compete with social media and these new forms of communication, I think that you've seen more outlets adopt something more approximating the Fox the Fox News business model, where you focus in on a demographic and cater to that demographic, whereas before there was this competition from social media. Um, there's more of an incentive to try to capture as large of an audience, as large and diverse as an audience as possible. But I think, I won't say intentionally, but I think the introduction of social media is what, um, and the change of, the, the yeah. change in the nature of our discourse is what facilitated this polarization. It uh, essentially made it such that everyone was able to form their own echo chambers. And I think a lot of psychological research shows that we unfortunately love like 
looking at things that make us upset, make us angry. And these echo chambers were already forming um, on, online, on social media. And uh, a lot of our most uh, prized uh, media institutions and outlets in order to compete with the new yeah. player in the game kind of came to model that new business model. Yeah, Arjun, you haven't spoken much about this. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, on, on social discourse where we're at? Yeah. Uh, um, I think social media has been like a positive and a negative. Um, so so I, I tend to veer towards social media being a negative. Um, and I think the reason is, is that um, the hope was that the internet would kind of serve to to expose people to different perspectives and and kind of allow them to engage with with enough of a broad array of opinions that that it would actually sort of deconstruct the uh, the echo chamber. But I think it's actually contributed to a, to a further echo chamber of um, so 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 to an extent you can you can kind of search out what you want to hear, right? Um, and I think people do that actively um, with regards, you know, with regards to news outlets, with regards to consider. Nothing to consider is that, like, I think something like Twitter, where you have 140 characters and things like that, it's not, it's not conducive to 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 the kind of discussion that I think is healthy for a democracy. Now, how much of that has been was happening before? I don't know, but but I think. Uh, if you look at the dialogue on Twitter, it's very much like just like strong political opinions and kind of catchy sound bites delivered. Without, uh, Arjun, so so the, let me cut you off right there and just ask you a more poignant question. I mean, the the, the way that social media has been uh, involved in um, influencing elections has been you know well documented since to 2016. People had a lot of complaints about how fake ads and things like that influenced the outcome there. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts on the Hunter Biden story and then what Facebook and Twitter did to it, for example? So some people would say the, the, it wasn't even censorship because you, you needed to get rid of the misinformation. Some other people would say the Silicon Valley tech giants are obviously liberally biased. Um, what should social media companies do, especially in the election season? I have one brief thought that I wanted to raise about the prior point before we get into Hunter, um, and and that's an entire can of worms in its own right. But I just wanted to say, Abe, I think that your observation about the, the social media shift was probably the most, I think, effective characterization that I've heard in recent memory. I mean, I think that really what it highlights effectively is that what we're describing in terms of like norms can easily be conflated with sort of just political headwinds, right? I think that in particular, you know, what we're noticing here with Trump and Biden over the last four years is sort of like the needle moving back and forth, the pendulum. But, but what Aid got at was the fact that like the the big shift or one of the big shifts in terms of general norms and acceptability and so on was moving the entire scale in a different direction, right? By exposing people to liberal and conservative or, or leftist and, you know, libertarian ideas, which were actually now starting to see, I think, very importantly in some congressional races to, you know, right now as we speak. But um, just the way in which it permitted a variety of views, you know, the so-called Overton window, I think just expanded in both directions in a way that just hasn't been seen before. Uh, echo chambers perhaps are the sort of lighter fluid on top of the fire, if you will. 
um, in, in the sort of um, communities that form within these groups, say 4chan on the right in the far, you know, sort of QAnon district of the internet, if you will, and then on Twitter uh, in, in sort of left Twitter as it's called. Um, anyway, I'll leave it there. I think that you all made some very, very, you know, very sharp observations. But um, the Hunter story, I, I would be very curious to get people's takes because I think that there have been some interesting critiques from all around uh, about the, the sort of decisions made by social media companies. And maybe they had an impossible uh, uh, sort of uh, home sort of sort of issue to field with that. But definitely curious to hear your takes. Honestly, by the way, we should probably move on as uh, wrap up in the next 10 minutes or so and uh, get get about to. Uh uh, uh, talking about some new segments going going beyond, but uh, we we, know we have some other segments prepared for people. Uh, Arjun, you got some other thoughts on on this issue that we... for sure. Um, yeah. So 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 with regards to um, yeah, I guess with regards to the Hunter Biden story, um, social media have have it. Social media is a tough job. I like it's 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 incredibly difficult just because it's it's incredibly difficult to like actually. I mean, you can write down a policy for, um, am I going to, uh, you know, flag this tweet or ban this tweet or I'm going to leave it up, right? So, 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 so that's sort of that's like the binary decision you're making, right? Um, I think it's impossible to write some sort of policy that can be like implemented in the form of like an algorithm that you can that you can sort of code up, right? That that I think it's just impossible. These things are like highly subjective, um, and I mean that's a, sort of an obvious statement, right? But that means that um, the the platforms are, are 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 have to make really tough and subjective decisions that yeah. people are naturally not going to like, right? So nobody's going to like. What what, if, what do you mean, dude? But but they, but you need to have consistent policy. Right? That's not very hard, right? For example, so I think the Hunter Biden story was a mistake, right? Like I I don't think that Facebook and Twitter should have banned it. At the same time, so 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 in general, like I think Facebook, Twitter, and Facebook, and especially has veer in the line of, of let's let anything be aired because we're a platform and we shouldn't regulate speech on that platform even if it's like demonstrably false right um that's the line that they've taken up until like pretty much this year and that's a val like, i mean i kind of disagree with it but that's that's a policy that you can take right unless that content is like obviously harmful in a, in a way that like incites um severe violence and, and life-threatening violence against somebody then you you just let it go Right, like that—that's a policy that that you can very much take, and you can say like, if these words appear yes. in the tweet, etc. Right. Right. Now, when it comes to like Facebook banning something like, okay, we're going to ban Holocaust denial, we're going to we're going to sort of crack down on anti-vaccine things like that. Those seem like socially desirable things to to crack down on. Yes. But, but yeah, then but it's it's like, yes. I mean, what was the policy, right? You've just you've sort of added, I'm going to add this to the list and say like, this is something we're also going to crack down on, right? You're not you're not saying like we're going to crack down on this because of XYZ, right? And, and, and because of XYZ, we can also crack down on, on the other things. I don't know if you can say that in a way that's like allows for a consistent policy. So uh, the Hunter Biden thing was a mistake. I don't think that they should have stopped it. I think it had something to do with like it being, the, I think the FBI flagged it, told them that it might be Russian disinformation. I think there was something about that, that which is why they stopped it. Um, I, you know, they, they shouldn't have, but, but, I have no answer for how social media companies should do this. I, I really don't know. So like I, I yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not really saying much here, but I, I, it's just it's just an incredibly difficult problem and, and you're going to make anybody unhappy. So I, I really don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, if, just to offer some concluding thoughts. I mean, I think Abe uh, brought up a wonderful theme for that, that we did not previously prepare, which is uh, so, social media 
uh, I'm not very optimistic in that regard because social media, Abe said putting people into echo chambers, but I would also add to, to the fact that you can find any facts on there, right? I mean, superior facts, inferior facts, good facts, bad facts, wrong facts, you can all find it there. Uh, and, and that's it. That, that's where you pick your fights and get your information. So I just don't see how partisan problems can be solved because that, that's how, and, but also get back to your question, Arjun, I, I do think there are consistent policies that you could very much try. For example, you wouldn't review or flag something unless it, maybe it's getting to 100,000 people, or you could say we, we ban, uh, you know, m most of the, you know, foreign intelligence fed in uh, information, you know, such as the Hunter Biden story, which you could very badly make that point, but it's just that the Facebook, well, also everybody hates Facebook. Twitter is less so, but it's it's it's, it's just a, a very tricky situation. But I don't think just saying it's a it's a tough question gives them a cop out, right? I mean, you, you should say we are not just platforms where media companies we do do some censoring and editorializing, which is acceptable. New York Times does that. Fox News does that. That's fine as long as you no. But I think, I think there's right? there's a difference, right? You can't say that if you like do any sort of censorship or any sort of regulation of content, then suddenly you become a media company, right? Like, I think that that's a dangerous thing. Like, you know, when you're a media company, you are producing content, right? And you are, you're putting out that content and that content usually has like an ideological bias. When you're a platform, you're allowing anybody to put content that could express any sort of ideology. All, all Facebook and Twitter are trying to do is, is try to say like, there are certain types of content that are so outside the pale, so beyond the pale that we have to get rid of it. As to exactly how you make those decisions, as you suggested, sure, those are concrete stuff that you can take. But when it comes to like, I mean, it's a difficult issue, right? So, so I mean, I was interning at, at, at Google last summer and, and, and somebody from YouTube came and, and talked about like how they were trying to police uh, content on, on, on YouTube because, because it, it's kind of a gateway to extremism for, for a lot of people. And they said like, okay, well, so if a far right politician says like something horrific, like immigrants are, you know, um, less than human and they're, and they're coming to like, you know, infest this country or something like that, that like evokes extremely sort of derogatory and, and kind of almost inhuman language against a group of people. Is that something that you get rid of or is that something that you actually keep because, you know, that perspective kind of needs to be out there for and whatever up for debate. So, so I don't know. Right. So, so, so yeah. in that case, right. Like maybe I would veer on, on the side of like, you keep that content and voters see it and, and, and make their judgment on it rather than get rid of it. So then where, where exactly does that line Guess fall? Wrong. I, I don't know whether you can, you can create a, like you're going to have contradictions in any policy, I think. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, I, I don't know how Facebook and Twitter exactly do it, but, but it seems to me that it's, it's impossible to write an algorithm for it. I disagree I, with that. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, I, like, I agree with you, Arjun, in that, Yes, the problem is a very difficult one on how to solve it, but I think the fundamental problem we're getting at is that just in the last 10 years, um, Facebook, Twitter, social media have essentially become like the equivalent of the public square, but they are also private companies. So I think, for example, within the Hunter Biden story, I think the the crux of the issue is that uh the crux of the issue is that there was supposedly a neutral principle applied to stop the story um i know with twitter they said it was their hacked material policy uh slash potential russian uh, foreign disinformation or um or what was it um 
I can't remember remember the third thing, but that was a little questionable. Well, extremely questionable because if you were to truly apply that neutral principle, for example, then they should have banned the New York Times account for publishing Trump's tax returns because that would be considered personal material or like hacked material because they presumably would have slowed the dissemination of Edward Snowden's um, whistleblower report. So it's not that I, I don't think that the, the problem that we're dealing with right now is that the neutral principles that we're applying are bad necessarily. And, and just as a side note, I do believe that they're bad. I think we shouldn't, they, they shouldn't have the power to determine like what information people see um, because they're not elected. But it's not, it's not that there are neutral principles. It's that these are neutral principles, quote unquote, that aren't applied neutrally. And it seems like as if so far, when they're unevenly implied, they have very real and consistent um, political ramifications. And it just so happened in this case that there was kind of a Streisand effect and it kind of backfired on their intended effect. But like, I, I'm not, I am empathetic to how difficult of an issue this is. I, I don't envy the position that these companies are in. I think you raised an interesting point about the consistency of response, which is sort of what you're hinting at, that we're seeing an inconsistent response, which therefore leads to a sense of like a lack of transparency. Um, and I wonder what you think about, you know, the future of these social media companies as a, as a source of reliable and trustworthy information. Well, that's, I think, the core um the core of it is one these companies aren't really sources of information if you think about it they are merely platforms that connect you to sources of information um so i i know that that's i'm sorry could you ask the question again i lost my train of thought yeah i mean just quickly before we move on to the energy segment i guess i was wondering since you know you mentioned the new york times articles and all these other sort of media outlets that use um social media to get their information across and i know a lot of people get their news from social media to begin with i think the point i was just trying to make is that your your point about the lack of consistency about um you know social media companies responses to these posts i think leads to a big transparency which you know could hint at a longer term trend of more distrust of news yeah. found on social media yeah and I, I think that that lack of uh, transparency in how these companies choose to what information is disseminated, the way their algorithms work on like who gets promoted, who gets, I don't know, there's like controversial takes on like people getting shadow banned and whatnot. I think that it's a huge gray area, but I think ultimately the way out of it to increase trust in not just these companies, but just information in general because honestly if you want to find something you can find it anything if you look hard enough i think the way to increase public trust of these companies and just information in general is through transparency of decision making behind 
subduing a story, preventing its dissemination, or the way um, algorithms work. And right now, they're, these are very closely guarded secrets. Um, it's a pretty opaque process, and nobody knows how like the YouTube algorithm works or the Twitter algorithm works. And I feel like that's the only way out of this. Arjun, you got any concluding thoughts before you, you have to go to? Yeah, I'm going to head out. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I have too much to add from, from what I was saying. I, I, I just, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess you could argue that these principles are not being applied consistently. Um, I, I tend to be skeptical that there's like a strong liberal bias within these networks within or sorry, within these companies in, in terms of how they enforce policies. Like, I mean, a lot of this seems to be like innuendo and insinuation because the fact is the most that most employees who work at the companies are Democrats. Like, I, I don't think that that seems to be like a, a common argument that's kind of made to insinuate that there's that there's bias. Um, uh, but it, it is possible that that at least you know at least, you know I mean look at the Hunter Biden case it's it's maybe true that 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 the rules are potentially not being equally enforced. Um, but but again I I I, I mean I, I wish I was more informed on on, on Facebook's and, and Twitter's actual policies. The really really all I can kind of do is is just say like you know when when it comes to when it comes to like hard policies you can say something like okay well you know ban if harmful content if it exceeds a certain threshold twitter is trying to like discourage retweets before you um before you actually read the tweet and 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 putting warnings there and things like that i think those are good things right like that those are things that are trying to encourage a little bit more informed discourse but but when it comes to actually policing content right it's just somebody's going to be unhappy um somewhere so that, that's that's what i would kind of say i gotta head out after this so thanks everybody You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.